When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This episode is titled, How To Land A Web Development Job With James Quick. So James Quick joins us in this episode, and if you don't already know him, James Quick is a developer, speaker, and teacher of all things web development, possibly most famously on his YouTube channel, which has accrued over 195,000 subscribers. He has over 10 years of experience teaching students and is currently working as a full-time content creator. You can find his teachings on his podcast, Compressed.fm, or his weekly YouTube videos. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast. App. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And without further ado, let's cut to that interview right now. All right, everybody, we have James on the line here. And before we jump into this loaded episode about landing a development job, James, what's up? What's going on? What have you been working on? And how's it going? Hey, uh, going pretty well. I it's a new year, so I guess kind of figuring out what I'm working on. But a couple of things I launched an Astro course. I think we'll talk a lot about Astro in uh, this session. So I launched the Astro course a few months ago, still working on updating that. And then I've been working on a project called Deals for Devs, which was originally meant to be just a Black Friday thing to list out like all the best deals for developers for Black Friday. But I want to turn that into something that one is year round and also I use to like do giveaways for people. So for swag or courses or stuff when people launch courses. Um, so that's one of the things that's been top of mind for me. Other than that, just creating content and hanging out. Awesome. And I'm I'm actually looking forward. We were talking just before the show. Um, I know that you use Astro quite a bit. And I looked up a couple of just because I haven't used it. So I looked up a couple of just sort of like, you know, explained in two minutes, three minutes, whatever. And uh, I don't really I mean, I get some of the points. I don't get some of the points as someone that doesn't use frameworks too often. I'm excited to hear your explanation when we get to that section of the show. Cool. yeah, I that is definitely one of the topics that I'm most excited to talk about. So I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun. Awesome. And uh, what I've done today, just for you, the listener, um, basically I've divided up the episode into sort of uh, three distinctive sections, plus the Astro section, of course. What I've done is, uh, you know, how to kind of land your job, but also kind of keep your job and what you, be, what, you, what you should be doing. So the three sections are going to be before you get the job, that's kind of like you're studying and preparing and getting ready for interview section. Then you have the on the job section, which is, you know, you just got the job. You're still a junior developer. What do you do? Do you just throw all that studying aside? Do you start side hustle? What do you do? And then into the future. So you've been you've sort of graduated from junior developer to just sort of developer or senior developer or however your company handles that sort of promotion process. 
no longer a junior. What do you do? Do you care about side projects anymore? Do you move on to another job? What do you do? And then, of course, we'll be talking about Astro after that. So let's just jump into the before the jobs section and the kind of the very first thing you're probably going to be thinking of if you're thinking about landing or starting to, you know, oh, I would like to become a junior developer one day. You're going to have to start looking at studying. You're going to have to start looking at practicing. And you're in this sort of really heavy learning phase or even just planning to start this learning phase. And so, you know, we hear just code a lot of the time, just code, just code, just practice, you know, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. That's how you get better. That's how you get better. But one of the things Mike and I talk about a lot is how, you know, just code sounds great, but there's a lot to just code and you could code the wrong thing. So James, what do you think a prospective developer should be quote unquote, just coding in order to be successful heading into 2024? Yeah. I think everything, all of my advice, especially getting started, goes back to do your research. And there's a few different perspectives on that. There's research of what type of job are you going to look for? Are you interested in what types of job are, this is more uh, relevant 10 years ago or so, what types of jobs are available in the city or the area that you're in? Now we have a lot more remote opportunities, so that's something to consider too. But for the types of jobs that you're interested in, combined with the types of jobs that you see, at companies locally or things that you might be qualified for or want to be qualified for from a remote perspective, what are the skill sets that those jobs are looking for? Like if you go and look at those job requirements, what is the list? Is it all front end? Is it all back end? Is it full stack? Is it using TypeScript and not just JavaScript? Is it using React? Is it using Next.js? Is it using something completely different? Doing your research gives you insights into how you apply your time. And the biggest thing, I think we talk about like just coding, I think from my perspective, I have a computer science degree and I'll be honest, I didn't learn very much practically on how to write code for my computer science degree. And the reason is I used it or I treated it like it was school and it was, I got good grades, but I didn't really understand what I was doing because when, when somebody gives you a prompt and prompt and some starter code for a homework assignment, it's relatively easy to take what you did in lecture and just finish that assignment. What's totally different is building something yourself where you don't have those guardrails and so the, the reason we tell people to build all the time is because that's how you learn. And you learn from having those stumbling blocks. You learn from spending an hour trying to debug something that turned out to be a missing comma or like whatever the stereotypical basic stuff is. But you learn not to make those mistakes and you learn the things that work. And that to me is so much more practical than just studying or completing homework assignments or taking Udemy courses, which I'm a huge fan of. But if you're just watching and consuming and not actually translating that to you writing code, it's not the same. It's just not internalized. So I think that advice is 100% true. You have to spend time building, but I think the more important thing is to be strategic about what you're building. So you can do your research to find out like technology areas, languages, front end, back end, et cetera. And then you can also focus more on like um, your portfolio. So as you learn, that's one side of it, but then you also get to use what you build to talk about in your interviews. And when I was in college, I was just kind of randomly interested in doing mobile app development. I knew, I knew someone who did it. He gave me a book on Android. I followed it. I got bored of it. And I decided I just want to build a Harry Potter trivia app. That's the thing I want to build. And I'm just going to figure it out. And I just Googled my way through building this really terribly done, terribly coded Harry Potter trivia app. But I got to talk about that in 90% of my interviews because that was the real world experience I had. That was the ability for me to learn outside of a classroom. That was the passion for what I was doing to be able to build something out of the classroom. And that made for me at the time, the perfect portfolio project. So you get to use coding, building, 
as a way to learn, as a way to reinforce things. Also then to think strategically about what your portfolio projects are that you can talk about when you get into applying for jobs and then in interview situations. I'm curious, like I have the same kind of experience as you where I went through traditional school for software engineering technology. And during that process, I was never told to build a portfolio. I don't know if you have the same experience. Like we were just like, hey, just do these courses, do these projects and stuff like that. But realistically, how are you supposed to get hired after any uh, any computer engineering degree or any computer science degree? Because you're right. Every time you sit down in an interview, they're going to be like, okay, but what did you do? No. <laughs> like, well, I did this assignment. Yeah, but that was like a step-by-step <laughs> thing. What the heck did you do? So I'm wondering if traditional schooling should adapt and start pushing in a similar way that like art schools push portfolios. Yeah. Maybe coding schools should start pushing or coding at things around Secret, coding, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, you mentioned coding schools, which we can kind of differentiate between like a formal college degree, which I think is what we're talking about and coding boot camps, coding schools, which I think do have a more, do have more of a focus on the portfolio projects for exactly the same reasons as you just mentioned. And I think, I think one of the reasons they don't do that as much with university, at least up until recently, is it didn't matter as much. And the reason is because you didn't have as many people breaking into the industry without computer science degrees. So now we're seeing this influx of people that are proving their way in, which I think is so, so cool. Like I, I judge myself for having a computer science degree because of not getting anything out of it or like really what I should have. And I have so much respect for people who look at like, I need something different in my life. I need something new. I need a career path that I've never had before and go to programming boot camps. And I've been on the other side of teaching this as well and seeing people put in the effort, learn the things they need to and get hired in six months to 12 months is an incredible story. So I think one, we just didn't talk about that as much from a computer science perspective because it wasn't needed, but you still had to find it wasn't needed as much. I should clarify, but you still had to find ways to differentiate yourself as always between any other candidate. And when I was talking to Microsoft, which is where I actually started my career, and talking to the recruiter, he said specifically, like, I want to see a section on your resume that says hobby projects. I want to know what you do and what you did outside of the classroom. Because exactly like you said, all computer science students have taken the same types of classes. All computer science uh, students have done the same types of homework assignments. All computer science students that are applying for really competitive positions have good grades and a good GPA. Like those are not the things that are differentiators. What you do outside of that is really important. And I think one of the things we should probably address now is the economy, right? Like we're seeing people and I see friends of mine being laid off every week, every month. And we're seeing layoffs at major companies down to small companies. And it, and it really, really sucks. But that is all of the things that we're saying, I think, have never been more important than right now because of how difficult the economy is. And the last thing I'll mention from a differentiation standpoint is networking. And I could talk about this for days. And to me, networking is not this like cold, sterile, go up and shake somebody's hand. I'm James. What can I do for you? It's just showing up. It's just being a part of the community. And you can be a part of the community in a million different ways. You can do it on Twitter. You can do it in Discord. You could do it by commenting on YouTube videos. You could be in a Slack community. You could go to in-person meetups, go to conferences. There's a million things you could do to just be part of the conversation that's happening. And those are the things from people that I've seen on the internet, from people I've taught, when they embrace the community, they immerse themselves in the community and they pay attention to the ecosystem. Those are the people, from my perspective, that are always the most successful. So it sounds like differentiating yourself is really crucial when it comes to you know, your portfolio, showing off what you've done. And if you have been through one of these boot camps or university course or whatever, you're if you do have any sort of portfolio, although it kind of sounds like, Mike, you didn't, and it doesn't sound like you did either, James, coming out of school necessarily, um, that 
you know, it's important to sort of build out a portfolio that is not just a step-by-step guide. Like not everyone followed the same YouTube video, not everyone followed the same university course or whatever. With that being said, though, what are sort of the more most important parts of standing out? The reason why I ask that is because there's going to be a lot of people listening to this who are looking for another career, but still in a career. And they're not going to have time to necessarily go to events. They're not going to have time to necessarily afford a lot of things. So what is the big, you know, what are some of the the big things in terms of impact that they can do with sort of a limited time to stand out, especially now that the job market's struggling. Yeah. I, I want to talk maybe a second on time first and everybody's got something going on, right? Like some of us have families, some of us are, are married and have spouses and partners, and some of us have other responsibilities to around the house or family or whatever it is. Right. I think the first thing I would do not to tell people that they're wrong if they say they don't have time, but really have them dissect and analyze and challenge that for themselves. How much time do you really have and base that on investing this time now, the impact that that can have on my career? And I am first and foremost, a huge proponent, and we'll talk about this, I think, more in the learning perspective outside of work, huge proponent of work-life balance. Work-life balance doesn't mean you don't do extra things. It means you have a happy balance for that. So for me, when I've spent years doing content while also working, I enjoyed doing content. So it wasn't taking away from my balance. It was just another thing that I enjoyed doing. And I think you can have a similar perspective, investing in yourself in resources and consuming content, et cetera. So looking first and foremost at how much time you have, I think, um, I think is important. I think it's, it's really helpful for people to have some sort of path. So from a free resources or very cheap resources perspective, There's tons of stuff out there. I've done tons of YouTube videos. There are amazing YouTubers out there. There's amazing full 10 hour crash courses on YouTube. I think the challenge that people have is not knowing how to prioritize a learning path because there's so many things. If you pay attention on Twitter, there's a new thing every day. And how do you actually prioritize the limited amount of time that you do have to do something that's productive? So there's a couple of different ways that you do that. You find one of those bigger 10 hour courses on YouTube, that seems like a lot, but that's like, it at least teaches you this whole thing in one block. I did a lot of Udemy courses. Udemy courses are actually the reason that I do web development today. If you've ever used it before, they go on sale for 10 or $15. So don't ever pay more than 10 or $15 for Udemy. And you can like, you can legitimately become a web developer just from that. I think there's also the potential for boot camps. Now this gets tough because often boot camps are the 40 hours a week during the day. The bootcamp that I taught was one that was at night twice a week. So I had a high percentage of people that had families that worked full-time jobs, et cetera. And that's really hard, but they were able to still maintain and do all the things that they had to from a responsibility and a family perspective. But just having, having that guideline and having a trusted resource around you to help guide you through where should you go next helps prioritize that time and make the most of that efficiently. And I think we can also go back to the building part. You can watch as as many courses and YouTube videos as you want to. That doesn't have the same impact as going and building a thing. I'm not saying you have to go out and build a SaaS product. I'm not saying you have to build something that people actually use. I'm not saying any of that. I'm just saying you have to build something and you have to be intentional and strategic about prioritizing that time based on the things that are going to give you the most value. All the things that we talked about, what's the topic that you're going to build? Are you going to focus on front end versus back end? What language, what framework, et cetera? And I've I've mentioned community. I talk about community a ton. If you are in a discord with people that you trust, if you have people on Twitter that you follow that you trust, if you have a podcast that you listen to that you trust, those are resources that can help give you that guidance. You can reach out to those people, understand that 
everyone that you reach out to for help may not respond and, and isn't expected to respond. I wish I could respond to everyone. I wish I could help everyone, but I can't. So just not hearing back is not, don't take that personally if you reach out, but fi- finding a person, a couple of people that you trust to ask questions to, to get guidance from and really prioritize your learning journey and your path and to get advice and feedback on what you're doing is essential, I think, especially in scenarios where you're talking about where you have a limited amount of time and you really have to make the most out of what you do have. And that's important. Like th- that's important to to sort of think about is if you if you analyze your time, like you're saying, you know, like come and co- like kind of do almost like an audit on yourself and see, like, okay, you know, I am just scrolling TikTok before bed. Yeah. I could be scrolling articles. You know, I could be scrolling guides. Mm-hmm. I could be listening to one hour of like or watching. I suppose one hour of that ten hour course. Ten days, I'm done. You know, the ten the ten hours. So it is absolutely crucial to sort of really kind of audit yourself and almost be, I mean, a little hard on yourself to an extent and just sort of be like, okay, like I need to do this. This is something that I have to treat almost as a responsibility in and of itself. And how do I get this responsibility done? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I, th- I think it's hard. It's hard to be honest with yourself with that. Um, so the more you can kind of let down your own barriers and analyze that I think is, is really beneficial. How important do you think is the enjoyment factor? Because I know you said like outside of your job, you were doing content and you loved it. I don't think everyone's going to love doing content, which is fine. Uh, But is it something that they should like seek out where like, hey, I want to learn tech. I want to learn development and I need to do this in my off hours. I need to find something that I don't hate at least, right? Like I need to find like, okay, I can build this project. I kind of love building this project. I can participate in this community. I can do that. And then you flip between them and stuff like that. How key is it to find that kind of like that passion, I guess people call it? Yeah. So you'll, you'll hear mixed results from people who advocate for passion in careers in tech. And often, so I am on the, you should have passion for what you're doing. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. The, the people who talk about not requiring passion for something are trying to make sure that people feel comfortable with making a decision of, I want to get into tech because I want to make good money. That's wholeheartedly perfectly fine. The balance for that with me is I'm not going to do something to your point that I hate just to make a lot of money. Now, I think there's plenty of opportunities in tech to find a thing that you do enjoy and still make lots of good money, which is where I think I've spent the majority of my career in. But I don't want to gatekeep people from getting in because of the money. That's great. But my personal philosophy is I want to be doing things that I enjoy every single day. And my motivation is to continue to work towards, if I look at what I do on a daily basis, and I pay attention on a daily, weekly, yearly, monthly basis. What are the things that I enjoy? What are the things that I do not enjoy? If I'm not working towards doing more of the things I enjoy, I'm not doing myself a service. Again, I want to be clear, making lots of money in tech is feasible. It's the reason a lot of us are here, at least part of it, but that doesn't override the enjoyment for what I do. So the reality is you may not love it while you're learning, you hopefully, I think at the very least, you have those moments where it's really rewarding, right? Like we've all been there where we spend 30 minutes, hour, multiple hours, multiple days trying to debug something and we want to throw our computer against the wall. That's how it is that happens to everyone. But hopefully when you find the solution to that, you feel good about what you did. You feel motivated about what you're capable of. You can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel and you have those moments of spark. Going through a career transition, and I've taught, again, hundreds of people through boot camps, is one of the hardest things adults will ever do. Because as adults, we're not used to being at the bottom of the totem pole. 
We're not used to starting from scratch. We're not used to being vulnerable enough to say, I don't know what the hell is going on. We're just not used to that. And to have to go back to being at the bottom of the totem pole at something is one of the hardest things adults can do. So just understand people that are going through that transition or thinking about it, it's very hard. I also want people to think about the impact for them that getting into a career in tech can mean. And a lot of people that I've worked with through boot camps are coming from what they would consider dead-end jobs, not making any anywhere near the amount of money that you can make in tech. They don't feel rewarded. They don't have promotion paths. They don't have career paths. They don't have career conversations. They don't have time to take off to go and, and be with their family, to pick up kids from school. That is terrible. And if you if you spend six months to a year of something that like you're grinding really hard, and again, life work-life balance is very important. But if you say, I, I this year is my year to invest and work very, very hard and invest everything I have and in making that career transition, that is a transition that for many people changes the course of their entire lives and their families' lives. So you have to kind of figure out that balance for yourself. Hopefully there's moments of things that you enjoy. Understand it's probably going to be tough. We all still as senior developers have moments that really drive us crazy too. And we want to throw computers against the wall, but we know it's the thing that we enjoy, hopefully enough to continue to do it. But I'm always a proponent of you should as you have the flexibility to do so, you should be looking to focus on doing more of the thing that you enjoy, less of the things that you don't, you don't enjoy. Really quickly, one last thing. I know I'm kind of talking a lot, but there are so many different segments of programming that even if you don't like web development, you might like just backend development. You might like databases. You might like design. You might like doing mobile app development. I didn't like mobile app development as much. It was cool, but it didn't click with me the way web did. And now this is what I do every single day. I wouldn't have been as happy doing mobile. I would have been happy, but I found the thing that I enjoy most. And now I get to do that all the time. I, I like your kind of sentiment of working toward doing more of what you enjoy. Because Mike and I have experienced this actually, because we run an agency and we've experienced this over the past few years where, you know, we find it really rewarding to take somebody's problem, like even because I do the small and media business stuff. Hey, I have a small car lot. I need help. You know, I want to. And then you like spin up their website and then they call you like we've literally had people call us and go for business is up 40 percent. I've never been online before. This is crazy. And you'll go into their Google, just their Google My Business um, analytics, not even their website analytics and all that. And you're like, wow, they're, they're getting 60 phone calls a month and they were getting four, you know, before. And that's like really rewarding. But then we'll draw back like we've been drawing back the other people where before we would do a lot of maintenance for people. But then they're always calling in a panic and you're only dealing with these people when they're in a panic. So now you're in a panic. And so it's like, OK, we're, you know, let's do more, you know, sort of larger projects. Let's draw back the maintenance angle. Let's draw back that stuff, even though it makes you money. It's like we're working toward, okay, let's do a little more content to fill that gap. And so I like that sort of almost transition to happiness, I guess you could call it, or workplace happiness, maybe. Um, what I think we should do is we should go on to the next topic, which is on the job. So let's say, you know, you've done this studying, you've put all your, your put your all in and you're, you know, you're ready to go and you're like, okay, you land that first job, wherever it is, you're a junior developer. So now you're thinking, all right, well, you know, I've done all this studying I've like really, you know, tried in 2024 or whatever year you're listening to this in. I've really given it my all. I've really done this. I can draw it back. And so my question is, you know, do you think that you should be drawing it back? What I mean by that is, should you still be learning outside of working hours? You know, it, it might seem unattractive or even useless to someone who now is working 40 plus hours a week, you know, and, and realistically, you know, should you be doing any sort of studies outside the workplace? 
Should you be doing more studies outside the workplace, less studies out of the workplace? How does that sort of fit into, I guess it's work-life balance, but also like, how do you sort of, you're in a new career now. Do you need to be doing things outside of work? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, first, obviously the, like, it depends on personal situations, right? Like we all have different levels of responsibilities that take different level of time commitments and, and all those things. So, so, so part of the answer is it's a personal decision for you. The other couple of things that I'll mention, and I think this is probably the most overlooked aspect of, of what you just asked is I am a firm believer that you should have dedicated learning time on the job. Now it may seem like all of your time is learning time on the job when you're new, when you're new, but you should have time to explore. You should have time to learn new things that are not directly related to the stuff that you're working on. You should have time and resources from your employer to be able to take a Udemy course and something else that's interesting to you. And this is this is highly dependent upon the culture that you're in work-wise because some companies will support you in the way that I'm talking about and some companies will think that you're crazy and you have to gauge that whether or not you can get that support from your company. Honestly, if they if they tell you a hard no, that would be my trigger to like, all right, I've got this job, this is great, but I'm also going to be working towards my next job in a company that invests in me more because that's what's important to me. So I think one, asking and advocating for having an hour a week, two hours a week to do some study on your own at work. I think that is something that is often overlooked and people are scared to ask. So I would highly encourage people to do that. I think another perspective is to let your passion kind of drive what you do. So when I was working full time before I transitioned into web and I was interested in these other things, I was taking these courses outside of my job because I was really interested in learning. And I wasn't doing it from a strategic perspective. I wasn't looking at my next career. I wasn't trying to get into web development, but I was just doing something that I really enjoyed. And I built a couple of side projects because that was something that I really enjoyed. And so for me, for, for that reason, it was easy for me to invest time into doing those things. And there were numerous times where I would walk into work and I would solve a problem because I had done something similar in a side project that I was working on. And that that is really valuable. But I I, I almost hate to... I almost hate to encourage it at that point because the big difference that I want people to realize when you go from working full-time and studying outside of that to then working full-time as a developer, let me clarify. When you go from working full-time, not as a developer, while studying to be a developer, and then you go to a job working full-time as a developer, you're going to learn more on the job than you ever did before getting that job. Like It's just a different level of learning. So I think what, what is also important is putting yourself in opportunities to learn based on the job that you have. Some of these are not created equal. Sometimes you have to take the first job to get the first job. And 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 honestly, if that's not the thing that really enables you to learn the things that that um, brighten or uh, expands your skill sets in a way that opens up opportunities for you in your career, you should be looking for that next job. And if you're in one of those positions where you're not in a culture that's supportive, you're not working on things that you think are going to be beneficial for you, you're not having fun with what you're doing, I think that is a, a cue to you you should be doing things outside of that within your whatever your balance is to be working towards that next step so that you can take advantage of the fact that you're already on a path in in tech but now you need to kind of jump a little bit to get on a, a more brighter path that has more optimistic opportunities so if you if you feel yourself being limited i think that's a, a big cue to go and look outside hopefully in the ideal scenario is you're now working full time you're working and learning things that are relevant for you. And I promise you, you will learn more on that job working 40 hours a week than you ever did in an equivalent amount of 40 hours on the side. It's just a totally different thing when you're working on real software with real developers 
and real experiences, real everything, that is going to be an exponential learning opportunity. So ideally, you're not having to take outside time to get anything more, but maybe, you know, depending on the scenario you're in, it might be worth it. Do you think that you should tailor anything that you decide to learn outside toward the job? So we have a, we used to have a professor, Mike and I did back in college where what he would do is he would get his work to purchase him textbooks on related or upcoming tech. And then he would tailor all of his, um, you know, in work learning and also out outward learning, like after hours and weekends, he would tailor all of that toward his specific job that he's doing. Do you think that, you know, if your job is using react, let's just say for an example, and you're interested in Svelte, should you be looking at learning Svelte or should you really be thinking now, like, you know, I'm a junior developer now, I need to think about the career I need to either you know, start learning React or if I am looking to move on to another job due to you know some level of a problem or whatever at my current place, I need to be looking back at those job postings and learning the other thing. Like, does everything need to be a career move? Can some things be you know your preference and your curiosities? What do you think about that? It depends on what you're getting out of your current job. Again, you can you can walk into a first job, you can be working on React, people can be giving you real development stories, you can see yourself progressing, and you can have an interest in Svelte and go and do that on the side and still have a very productive career path with what you're doing at work. I, I feel like sometimes I come off as the person who's telling everyone they should be spending every second of the day focusing on their career to get to the, the ultimate position that they want to be in, etc. And, and, and what, I really want to com- what I really want to convey is if that's your goal, you have control over doing that, you alone. No one else can influence how far you make it in your career. It's up to you what you do in the job you have. It's up to you how you go and find that next job, whether it's doing research and doing extra hours outside of work. If you have those specific goals, it's up to you to take the responsibility to do that. So if you're in a situation where your first job, you had to take it and people on the team use React, but they don't give you opportunities to take stories in React and you're doing, I say just documentation, not that documentation is a bad thing, but just documentation from a perspective of you're not getting hands-on development time and you've asked your manager to try to take on some stories and you've talked to the team to try to take on some stories and you're not getting help and assistance doing that, then yes, you should probably be spending time outside of work focused on what that next career opportunity is and, and backtracking from your research for what those job opportunities look like. If you are getting what you feel like you should from a learning perspective, from an opportunity perspective, from a visibility perspective at your current job, I think that is definitively the sign that this is your time to explore and tinker and have fun. And I think the biggest realization that I have as a developer and in life, actually, this is really interesting. There's very little differentiation in anything across the world. We talked about like before we started recording, we talked about Mac and Windows and people are diehard Mac or Windows. Reality is they're not that different. Like I could go back to a Windows machine for the first time in 10 years and I could be fine. When I picked up a Mac for the first time, I'd never used it before. It was fine. If you look at Android and iPhone, we could debate about people love Android versus iPhone, but the reality is the feature set that they come out with over the course of time has been very similar at very similar times. If you look at makes and models of cars, they progress. The body styles change from 2005 to 10 to 15 to 20. They change across the board. There's very little differentiation. It's maybe a little dramatic, but, but the same applies when you look at frameworks. We, we love to debate about frameworks, felt angular view, React, SvelteKit, Next, Remix, all these things. We love to debate about it. The reality is the majority of what a framework does for you doesn't change across framework to framework. 
what changes is how and the syntax of how they do that and how you do it and how you use it as a developer. So my biggest realization as a developer with more experience is I confidently know I can go learn anything because I've already seen something similar to it, right? Like if you throw me into another language, another framework, I'll pick it up because I've done several different to see how differences, to see how different frameworks do different things, to understand the concepts of what they're trying to solve. And I can apply that in a new one. And I think that's something that's very important experience for people to have relatively early in their career to build up that optimism of, I know I could go in somewhere and learn something because I've already done this a couple of different times and I drew those parallels and I see the similarities and I understand the concepts. I could go and learn this next framework for this next job. Building, building off of, of that. So like, you know, like you were saying, like Android and iPhone, they're kind of like, you know, neck and neck for features. And then all these like sort of larger frameworks like React and Svelte, just for an example, they're kind of neck and neck. What do you think about sort of the the similar, but yet the other side of the fence when it comes to no code tools, because that's something that developers are die hard for or die hard against. And, <laughs> and I'll argue with people saying, you know, I deal with the small to medium business clients in our in our agency, you know, for the budgets and for the size of the projects like using WordPress, you know, set up as a no code tool or using Webflow is unbelievably valuable to these customers at this level. And it's unbelievably valuable to me because it's fast. I don't have to like really learn anything or do anything super custom. It's I throw it together. Not like, I mean, a little better than throwing it together to be clear, but (laughs) I put it together (laughs) and then I ship it for them and they're happy with it. Like it, you know, it's their marketing page. It's their email form. It's, you know, it's small to medium businesses, business concerns. What do you think about the people that say, no, no, you know, custom code tools, you know, the the most tools we're going to use are, NPM packages and frameworks. I'm not touching no code. What do you think about like that, that other side of the fence? I, I saw this thing on Twitter, I think recently, and it, it kind of made the assumption that if anyone is diehard one way or another, not just that topic, but another topic, they're probably a junior developer. And I like, that's not quite fair. Like I don't like super blanket statements, but I think the point was as you get more experience as a developer, you realize that the intricacies and the details matter. And so if you ask me which database you should use, if I say to, it depends and people laugh because that's a stereotypical avoidance answer, it's because it actually depends on what you're doing. And there are some details in the framework that makes, makes differences as well. So when I look at people who are adamantly against no code, I, like that's fine for your use case. And that's great that you don't need that. That doesn't mean that it doesn't serve its place for developers and non-developers alike. And my favorite thing about being a developer is being able to build. I love to see whatever I do with my hands, whether it's write code or drag and drop something, I love to see a result from that, that in theory, other people can use and I have something I can show people. And so many people are quicker, faster, more efficient at building the same experiences without writing all the code, with whether it's low code or no code. Now, I think there are a lot of situations oftentimes where you get into no code, low code platforms and you find limitations. And that's just kind of how it is. So it has to be for the right use case and people have to kind of figure that out for themselves. But if it enables you to do the thing that you're trying to do faster, more efficiently, et cetera, go and do that. Like, no, I'm not the person that's going to talk down on people that use no code, low code products because I do too. And I would, if I like definitively knew I could do something better with them. I have, um, I, I do online courses. I mentioned my Astro course and I host everything through Podia. Podia is a platform that takes care of hosting the courses, doing emails, doing coupons, handling payments, does all these things. I had an issue with Podia that I posted about on Twitter and they, and people posted a couple of people, this is your opportunity to go and build that all yourself with your own code. And and that would be really cool to do, but there's no way in hell 
I'm going to build my own course platform. Like, do you, like, do you understand how much time and co and debugging and like responsibility that would put on me to go and do that? And that's just, I think a little bit of short sightedness to not quite understand what all it takes to do all of those things. So at the end of the day, do whatever makes you most productive. The one thing I will say though, is if you're looking to get that first job, if you are looking to get that next job, let your research infer for you where you should spend your time. If you have an option to build your personal site with Webflow and, uh, and or to build it from scratch with React and you see a lot of jobs out there that are using React, yes, I adamantly say that you should prioritize your time to do the thing that's going to be most productive for the type of job that you're looking for. Outside of having a specific reason to do that, do what makes you the most happy and what uh, enables you to build the fastest. Yeah, I, I definitely think there's a there's like a contrast there with people where, you know, they'll they'll always want to build everything in custom. But then like the like I'll always bring up, the, you know, time is money, you know, angle or people will call me and they've trained all their marketing staff on the Webflow CMS or the all on the WordPress CMS yeah. more more often. And it's like, hey, like. I know how to do it custom though. That's better. Like that's not going to be a selling point. They're going to be like, oh, well, well, we're not, you know, we're calling for we're a, a WordPress site. Like we're out of here no. kind of thing. We got 20 people trained. We're not going to train them again. And it's like, oh, okay. Job lost at that point. So <laughs> yeah, definitely sort of like a one-to-one check what's most valuable for you at the time and then sort of implement that as, as needed. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's a good perspective to see on test, like doing consulting um, or running agency, like you, you were saying that, um, a lot of times when you do that, you have a lot less choice over what you use to build something because a lot of times it's updating or maintaining existing projects. It's not building stuff from scratch. So I think having that's a, a, a unique type of role that I think is really interesting for people working at an agency to potentially get a lot of experience with a lot of different things. Consulting is a similar thing where you go into a company that has a product and you got to go and figure it out with whatever they have. And I think that is the benefit of that is, is being able to go across or get experience with a lot of different ways to build stuff. Yeah, it's certainly it's certainly uh, an, an interesting role, even though, like, you know, we're not the biggest agency or anything like that. Mike and I have many war stories that we won't share now, as we call them, but many, <laughs> many interesting stories, many, uh, many interesting characters. And and uh, that includes, uh, I mean, what most famously, Mike was called and told to uh, re- recreate Uber Eats uh, for one hundred and twenty dollars. I think it was Mike, something like yeah. that. It's easy. That's yeah. fun. No, because the guy's cousin could do yeah. it for 50 or something. I think he I think he said to you. It yeah. was just Which, an immediate nope. <laughs> yeah, I think the response to that is, all right, we'll have your cousin do it for $50. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. Sounds good to that me. That is the correct and the response that I gave. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we move on now, so let's just say you're, you know, under the next seg- under the next segment and under the next segment of your prospective career here, you're no longer a junior dev. You're in the future, if you will. So you're just a, you know, just a dev or just a senior dev or whatever. Again, however, your workplace handles positions and promotions. You're moved on now. And so there's still sort of a question there of, you know, you you're always learning. That's what we're always told in school. You're always learning. You're always learning. And and that's true. But do you need to start looking at other things? You know, should you be still learning you know, on and off, on and off your work hours, because now your knowledge is getting a little bit more dated, potentially, um, more specifically, maybe not the stuff that you're working on, unless your workplace doesn't upgrade. But, you know, you're sort of, um, I guess, community at large knowledge may be getting a little dated if you haven't been studying outside of work hours. And also just to kind of tack this on side projects and side hustles seem to be, you know, the hottest thing to talk about on X on, you know, social media in general kind of thing. Should you be at this point, you, you know, you've, you, you've studied up, you might be doing a little bit of studying, 
Should you be building a side project or side hustle? Should you be taking on that responsibility? What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm never going to be the person I think that, that comes across as like, this is how you should, this is what you should do. And the reason is there's a million different caveats to that. What I will say is let's start maybe from like a content creation perspective. So people look at content creators, podcasts, being on Twitter, et cetera. And a lot of people feel like they have to, to be successful. They wonder if they need to be active on social media or be a content creator, et cetera. And the, the answer is no, you don't have to do that. But I mentioned a couple of things that I've seen people do that are the most successful and the people that I've worked with. And one of the things that those people do is share and sharing can take form in a blog post, in a, in a podcast, on a video. It could be a lot of different things, but the, the people that I see that are the most successful, especially from coming up as new developers, sharing and investing in the community, some caveat to that. So do I think people have to be on social media, have to have be a content creator to some extent to be successful? No. Do I think that it's a hack to open up more opportunities in your career? Absolutely. So if you're looking, if you're looking to do more in your career, networking, investing in the community, sharing content is one of those things that definitively can have a major impact on where you go in your career. And my personal story is I was let go from PlanetScale a year and a half ago, a little bit more. And this is actually before the economy that we're in now. Like it was just before we started having all these layoffs. And I was let go and I had a decision. Do I go full-time doing content, which is what I'm doing now, or do I go and find another job? And I posted on Twitter and I said, hey, I was let go. I'm looking. I am potentially interested in these types of roles. Let me know if you're hiring. And I got 50, 75 DMs from people hiring. And it wasn't just like, hey, we have an open role. You should apply. It was more like, hey, we'd love for you to come work at our company. And I don't mean this from a, like a bragging perspective. I mean this from a very like practical perspective of the, the trust that I had earned in the community, the relationships that I had built in the community from having been involved in the community, from speaking at conferences, from creating content over the course of 10 years, led to that point of those people who reached out knew enough about me that it was worth it to them to potentially like skip some of the interview process to have opportunities to go and work for their company. And so do I think those things, those types of things open up more opportunities? Absolutely. Now, the other side, and specifically what you asked about is doing a side project. I think one of the most beautiful things about being a developer is our ability to build. Like any, anything that you, any solution to a problem that you see out there these days has a programming component to it, right? Like we talk about uh, or you'll hear the cliche, like, I don't know, like it's, um, what is it talking about how major companies, you don't think of them as a tech company, but they basically have to be a tech company. Like I worked at FedEx. FedEx is not known for being super innovative with websites or anything, but they have a heck of a lot of tech that goes into to. making that business run. They have to, and every business does for the most part. Right. So the beautiful thing about being developers, you have the ability to go and do that stuff. Like you can go and build your own product. And a lot of people work at companies like FedEx and they know the insider information about how this stuff works and they know they can do it better because FedEx software has been around now for 10, 20, 30 years. It's not easy for them to migrate to something new or to solve a, a, the same problem in a different way. So people leave companies like that. People leave Google all the time with their own ideas of how to build their own thing that's going to compete with X, Y, and Z because they have the skills and they have the knowledge. So do I think that as a developer, you have opportunities to do that? Absolutely. Do I think you have the potential to go and make a million dollars doing that? Absolutely. You have the potential to. You also have the potential, like most startups, to fail, whatever failing means. But I, I use that for myself to come from a perspective of building something is freaking fun. And I have the potential to turn that into something. And that's enough for me. 
Does it give you additional expertise? Does it give you additional perspective for your development career? Yes. But I also think there's another level to be thinking about as you get to like senior in your career. And that is what path are you on? Are you on a management path? Are you on an IC path, independent contributor, where you stay as a developer and go up from senior to principal to staff or whatever it is? I think you start to look at what are the other skill sets that enable you to do more in your career? Because ultimately, most developers get to the point where they feel like they're kind of, they've hit the ceiling. A lot of companies have hard caps on how much money you can make. A lot of companies have hard caps on the titles that you can get to. So a lot of developers get to the point where they don't have that next step. And I'm personally not, have never chosen the management route for different reasons, although there's parts of that that I would enjoy. But I think you need to start thinking about that. And I also think the way you move up in your career after you prove your technical expertise is your sphere of influence. And I think about your spheres of influence as a new developer, you're only able to impact yourself. You're, you're like in the water and you're just treading water. You're trying to stay up to date. You're trying to learn what you can. You're trying to get your stories done, et cetera. As you get a little more comfortable, you maybe are able to like help other people. You're able to answer questions for other people, new developers as they come on. Maybe you're able to help out other members of your team. You're able to speak up more in architectural decisions that you make as a team, things like that. So your sphere of influence is growing. When you go from like senior to whatever the next title is, titles are just arbitrary made up, so it doesn't really matter, but whatever it is above senior, your sphere of influence now is going cross team, cross organizations, across the company where you're able to influence decisions and thought processes at a higher level. That to me is kind of the evolution of working through these tiers of job titles. And so communication, I think, is huge. Being able to speak confidently and translate technical details to non-technical stakeholders and upper management had always been, or specifically with me at FedEx, was kind of my hack because I had been public speaking for years. At that point, I was very comfortable with having my voice and taking my technical knowledge and using that at a different level. And I think that's something for people to think about. Yes, you could spend time building something outside, which is there's lots of fun in it. There's lots of potential upside, but also just strategically where you are in your career and what the next step is. There are now other gaps that are not just technical that you can potentially work on to get there. The the sort of um, the thinking process of jumping from technical role to management role, I think, is going to be a big thing for people, too, because they're not going to realize like, oh, shoot, like, you know, maybe they did get into tech for the love of it. And then now in in their particular case, you know, it's you're, you're less a technical manager and you're more of just a people manager. And that's like a big thing. You hit that ceiling and you're like. I'm only, you know, 15 years, let's say into my career, or maybe I have another 15 years or whatever you, however, however long you expect to work left in my career. Am I still, am I just going to sit here and just get like my, you know, infl- uh, for inflation Inflated, raises? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Is, year, is that yeah. all I'm going to get, you know? So that's a big, big question, I think for a lot of people. And, um, I definitely saw that in I, in IT, when I worked in IT, I saw people go from, you know, we, we used to run around and help everybody, you know, IT desktop, we'd run everywhere, run the lines, do the phones, do all the stuff. And then we had a, t- a team member at the time who decided to go into the tech lead role and the tech lead just, you know, in terms of like not returns of running around doesn't just sits in the cubicle and they're more manager. They're more managerial in a way where they sort of manage our tech. And then they tell us, okay, here's your new tool set that you use. But he, you know, at first he hated it. Cause he was like, man, I'm just sitting here. I'm not doing this. And it's a big, it's a big difference. People think, yeah, but you're making more money, but it's like, yeah, but it's not like yeah. $2 million more or something, <laughs> you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah, the, the money thing is interesting and it's always, um, there's a lot of things I wouldn't do for more money. 
Right. Um, and that that just obviously again has to be a personal decision. And, and it's and it's okay to go and try something and, and not like it. It's okay to go into management and decide you don't like that. Like that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's so it's also okay to just not try management. Um, one thing I will say though that is very useful for people. The the easiest way to make more money is to change jobs, like or companies by far the easiest way. And I'm I'm not the advocate for you should just leave just because or you should always chase money. The caveat for me of that is like. Yeah, if I could do something similar to what I'm doing now, enjoy it as much as what I'm doing now and make $50,000 more a year, I'm absolutely going to do it. There's no reason I'm not going to do that. And that's not, well, I guess you could call it lack of loyalty if you want to. But the reality is most companies, it's just so hard to make more money within a company. And you see people leave for more money all the time. And it's just sad because companies, a lot of them just don't take keeping people there as seriously as I think they should, it's it's hard to do, and I like there's reasons for it. But you see, people leave for more money. So for me in my career, if I'm at a job, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I could go somewhere else, make fifty thousand dollars more, enjoy what I'm doing there, work with another talented team, get new insights, and like work on different stuff. Like that's still part of it too, part of the benefit. I would probably go to my manager if I enjoy where I'm at and say, hey, like I found another opportunity. It's really it's really nice. I would make this much more money. I also really enjoy being here. Is there anything you could do? And then I just make a decision, right? Like if they say we could give you an increase of $10,000, I'm still going to go take the $40,000 at the other company, right? Like I'm going to make the best decision for me, but I also want to be transparent. I want to be respectful and I want to be honest with people that I'm uh, like managers, like to let them know what's going on and give them a chance to, um, to try to make a change of some sort. And that's where, that's where negotiating power comes from, to be honest. Negotiating power comes with the ability to walk away and be fine. And I would be fine walking away with $50,000 more to go do a similar job and enjoy it as much. So I would encourage people to at least explore opportunities, go have conversations with people, interview once a year or so, just to kind of like stay up to date with your resume and interviewing what jobs are out there and, and, and things change, right? Like with this economy, I don't, I have no idea what, like how salaries are compared to two or three years ago, right? They're, they're probably down because of the state of the economy. So I would, I would just recommend people stay open. Like you never know, you never know what's going to happen. So um, yeah, I think that kind of follows your like transition to happiness or pursuit of happiness approach too. like even, you know, you're, you're, you're content at your job, but if you could be $50,000 happier, uh, mm-hmm. at a job, that's gonna, <laughs> that's the same. You're going to be, you're yep. going to take that leap, right? Like that's, and I think that that's a good approach too. Like if you're not content at your job and you're making a bunch of money and you can take a $10,000 cut, but be really happy at that job, maybe that's an also another approach you could do, right? Like it's all you have to weight all that towards, again, at the end of the day, the pursuit of happiness uh, as corny yep. and dumb as that sounds. Yeah. No, I, well, it's funny. Like you mentioned as corny and dumb. What I've realized is when we have pieces of advice, for example, that are cliche, most of the time people use as, that as an excuse to ignore it. But the reality is that these pieces of, of advice are cliche because they're true for millions of people, right? Like it is the thing that people say over and over again because it's also true. And so when people say things like you should be spending time writing code and that's the thing that's going to make you better, a lot of times people don't embrace that. They don't, they don't actually take that seriously. And a lot of times when we give advice and it sounds cliche, like you, you should be pursuing happiness in your career, a lot of people focus on, well, I don't have the ability to do that because of X, Y, and Z, right? Like they find reasons for that cliche advice not to apply to them. But the reality is the cliche advice is cliche. Because it applies to almost everyone if you take it seriously and you work towards actually implementing that on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. I do. I do find that 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 to be very true as well. Like, it's just for, for whatever reason, even sometimes some, somebody will take like a cliche piece of advice, 
repackage it and then that becomes like sort of the viral piece of advice it's like don't follow this cliche advice follow this <laughs> other thing and it's like it's the same it's the same <laughs> point come on people like what's what's going on here but yeah sometimes it just takes another another voice another perspective right to make it resonate so some some of that is is um i don't know makes sense because and that's, that's one of the things i advocate for too as a content creator a lot of people are scared of doing content because it's been done before but the reality is we have so many content creators and they're still so successful because people love to have different perspectives and different voices and different examples and so on and so on. So in that case, maybe it's just like it resonates more. Um, but also, I think it is easy to just run with the cliche stuff and make a living off of it, too. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, it's good, like motivational quotes for your um, for your yeah. banners and all that stuff on social, for sure. That's right. <laughs> Well, I think that's a good uh, sort of uh, overview of, uh, you know, before you're a developer, as a junior developer and going, you know, through through the job into the future, you know, as you progress your career. And I'd like to actually kind of move the show on to the Astro section that we mentioned, because I know that you you and I, James, were kind of DMing about that a little bit. I looked up a couple of videos, like I said earlier, and I just don't like I'm not into the zeitgeist with frameworks and stuff like that, working with small to medium business clients. So I'd love to sort of give you the floor on this and, you know, try to maybe explain it to me, someone who doesn't really know what's going on. Like what is Astro and like, why should people be using it? Yeah. Um, Astro is a framework and it's a framework in a world of a bunch of different frameworks that are overwhelming. Astro started primarily as a static site generator and we've gone through this revolution over the last couple of years. Some people will call it like going around in circles. And I agree to a certain extent where a few years ago, we had this idea of the Jamstack. Jamstack stands for JavaScript APIs and markup. And it had this huge focus on generating static content. And the basic example is you have a blog and instead of on request for a given blog page, going to the database, grabbing the information for that blog post and sending it back to the browser. We do all of that at build time, which means by the time someone requests this blog post, it's static. It's just an HTML file sitting in a CDN, a content delivery network. And that file just gets sent back. And that's super fast and it's secure because there's no back end to hack at that point, et cetera, et cetera. And that was, <laughs> I, like, I would say kind of revolutionary at the time. And Gatsby was the thing that really got my eye on it. So people were, everyone I saw on Twitter just converted my site to Gatsby and I'm so excited and so happy. And so I decided to do that. And I did that a while back. And then I was looking at kind of migrating from Gatsby to maybe Next.js in the last year, year and a half or so. And I was going to Next.js and I was trying to build just a regular static blog. And it was just difficult, like more challenging than it should be, I think. And I heard people talk about Astro in the sense, like similar to what I heard about Gatsby, like everyone was moving their blog to Astro and I see posts about it every day. And um, I decided to try it. And immediately things just worked. Like, I can't tell you how many hours I had spent trying to kind of migrate things to Next.js. And then I got into Astro and it was like, it just, it just works. And so it started as the idea of statically generated content. And I think Astro to me is the, the best example of developer experience. Things just work for the specific use cases that they built Astro for. And that started as static sites. I think similar to the revolution we've had with static in general is we realized we need more. And that's why we saw Gatsby has now embraced server function, serverless functions or whatever. Next.js has always been a great example of being able to combine static content with server-side render content, now moving into React server components and a focus on the server there. And so Astro nailed the developer experience for static stuff, and then they started expanding into server stuff. And so with Astro now, it's a full stack framework. You can do anything static that you want to. 
You can server-side render any page that you want to. You can mix and do hybrid with static and server-side rendered. You can have API endpoints, basically build out an, a complete full-stack application and have all the things, most of them, that you would get from Next.js. Like Next.js has some niceties that are built in to do certain things. Astro gives you the ability to do all that, but may not have some of the niceties to do it. But the thing that's most impressive to me with Astro is they just, again, nail that developer experience. So I know I know they're going to continue to add more functionality and niceties on the back end, on the server side. And I think it's legitimately a competitor in the Next.js space and the Remix space and the SvelteKit space, et cetera. I think it's such a cool option. There's a few other things that make it really, really compelling. One is it, it ships zero JavaScript by default. So you have to kind of opt into JavaScript. So it's got a real big focus on performance. To add JavaScript, you can include other UI frameworks like React, Vue, Svelte, et cetera, Solid, Quick. Like so many of these things, you can write that inside of an Astro project, which is really, really cool. Like I, I, when I first heard about that, I was like, I don't, that's not, like I wouldn't really use that. But now when I'm kind of realizing the impact of that is like I can move from a React application into Astro, copy over the majority of my React code, and then take advantage of all the things that Astro gives me. So that's really cool. Astro also has integrations. So it's kind of like one, one click installs basically, or one command installs for different things like the UI frameworks, like Tailwind. I just did a video on Astro Tunnel, which is a plugin to be able to expose your locally running dev server to the world. So I could share it with someone else. If I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this thing. Can you take a look? So the, the integrations, the uh, zero JavaScript by default. And then lastly, the Astro Islands architecture. And this is Islands architectures and a few other frameworks as well. But it's basically the idea of like, we're not going to ship any JavaScript until we specifically need to. And that's going to be an island where we need JavaScript. So I can write my whole website in a regular Astro component that's completely static. And I can have one component that uses Svelte, for example. My newsletter is an example of that on my, uh, my site is with Svelte. Everything else is basically static. And on there, I can um, just ship the JavaScript for that little piece and not have it anywhere else on the page. You can also optimize that to where if my newsletter is at the bottom of the page, I can define it to where it doesn't load that JavaScript until I actually scroll down to it. So if I never, if the user never scrolls down to the newsletter, no JavaScript gets sent to the browser. Anyways, there's a million different things that are really cool about Astro. Developer experience, I think, is the number one thing. Working with static content, I didn't even mention this, content collections, working with Markdown, it's like the best experience for working with static Markdown content or MDX content by far, like by far to me. There's lots of really cool things. I did um, a full Astro course uh, where we build, we take advantage of both server-side rendered and statically generated content, do authentication, work with a database, all these things. And I think it's just going to continue to get better and better as they add more and more features. Do you see the cross, um, I'm going to call it cross-reference or cross-framework sort of working, interworkings? Like you can use like a Svelte, like a bit of Svelte or a bit of React inside of Astro. Do you see that more as a, hey, you know, your current website will work as you slowly migrate to Astro fully? Or is it more so like, yeah, actually use React because it's better at doing X. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. So without using one of the external frameworks, UI frameworks like React, you can add JavaScript, but it's just in a like vanilla JavaScript in a regular script tag. Um, and, and that's not the way that we build interactive stuff now. Um, this would be an interesting debate for someone. Um, that is really into just building with vanilla JavaScript, but I rarely see the use case of building anything beyond something very simple with vanilla JavaScript. And so to me, I think 95% of people for these types of interactions that you want to build would jump, would lean towards doing 
a UI framework. And so I think in some ways it's a necessity to be able to bring over because Astro Components doesn't give you that by default outside of a, a vanilla JavaScript script tag. I think it also is part of the migration story. Uh, you have something that's existing, you can bring it over piece by piece um, and dump it into Astro and again, get advantage, take advantage of the other Astro features that are there. And I used to be kind of confused on why this would be useful because I was like, why? Like people would say like, oh, you could do a component in view and a component in React and a component in Svelte. I'm like, that that seems dumb. Why would you Why would you do that? And I, and I don't think that's really the use case. I think the use case is I want to build with Astro. I want to take advantage of all the things that it gives me. And I want to bring my framework experience to the table that I already have and be able to leverage that almost immediately and just take advantage of Astro as a platform. What do you think of like, like the... And obviously, like the, this, the thing I'm about to say is not as mature technically as like as like the, all these frameworks and such. But we've had you know a couple of guests on the show where they're like you know, they're really passionate about not using frameworks anymore and using the platform, meaning JavaScript, because JavaScript itself obviously is being updated and maturing as it goes on. And so, like Astro, kind of seems like a step away from that idea and is like really embracing frameworks, especially since it's embracing multiple frameworks, really. What do you think of that? Like, do you think that over time Astro and all these frameworks will eventually sort of, I don't want to say degrade, but will their uses go down and will, will be more on the platform? Or do you think that, you know, we're going to be doubling down and there's always going to be two camps. What do you think? I, I think there's multiple perspectives on that conversation. I'm a big, advocate that I I don't see any reason I would build almost anything with just vanilla JavaScript. Now, I would love to have a non-confrontational conversation with people about the opposite. <laughs> like I'd love to have that conversation. My perspective is I have no reason to build almost anything with just vanilla JavaScript. So I think that that is always a necessity to have some sort of UI framework type thing that I can leverage. I what other part of the question was like degrading remind me the other parts of that question yeah so like the idea like some some of the you know some of the like the, the the people that are like very like we just want to use javascript like platform yeah they think that that frameworks will eventually sort of fade away yeah. and the platform will mature to be the thing we all use do you think that that's yeah. going to happen I still don't think so. I think they're part of the conversation. Something like Remix is a big advocate of this, of taking advantage of the platform as is versus a framework building things on top of it for you to leverage. So I think we are seeing more and more conversations about taking advantage of the platform as is. We're seeing more and more ways for people to do form submissions using forms the way they were originally intended. Server actions with Next.js is one of those things, right? Like it combines, I think it combines what looks to be platform fundamentals, which is form submissions, with a modern way because it doesn't force you to do a full page refresh. I think I think there's there's kind of no way around that if we want the best experience on a form submission that doesn't redirect somebody to a new page, that we don't want to have to do a full page refresh. I think I think that's probably fairly accepted. And so you're seeing more and more ways to embrace the platform for what forms can give you while also integrating that in a way that's the best experience for the user now, which does involve some amount of JavaScript, but also has the backup of working without JavaScript. So if JavaScript is disabled, they have ways to just let it do its normal thing, which is a full page refresh, but the, ma the majority of the time JavaScript is not going to be disabled. So I think there, there are more and more conversations happening and more and more implemented in the frameworks about embracing frameworks, all frameworks, or excuse me, uh, platform fundamentals. You are going to see more and more frameworks 
have their opinions of of how that works and and probably have abstraction layers on top of that. I don't see in any reasonable amount of time that the idea of a framework goes away because of how good the platform is by itself. Now we saw that with jQuery kind of, right? Like we saw jQuery had all these utilities that allowed people to do X, Y, and Z with querying DOM elements, replacing DOM elements, et cetera. A fetch request that it could do the, um, whatever the name of it is. Ajax. In Ajax, thank you. Um, inside of there. So we've seen JavaScript have built-in fetch, which is easier to do. We've seen JavaScript now add functions for querying DOM elements, for updating DOM elements. We've seen JavaScript do all those things to, to the point where jQuery is probably just completely not needed at all when you compare to vanilla JavaScript. But the things that frameworks do right now and for my foreseeable future, I don't see being replaced by fundamentals or, or platform fundamentals going forward, at least any time that I can imagine. And I think I think Mike and I are on the kind of the same page there because I'm slowly learning Svelte and SvelteKit. And like Mike's always because I, I like I said, I use a lot of tools. So like my coding is like I do vanilla JavaScript, but it's just to like move a title that doesn't have a control in the CMS to move it type thing. And yeah. like, you know, as I've been like building just like a little app to learn, you know, I've been texting Mike like, whoa, like this is a lot easier than just using the platform or like, you know, this is mm-hmm. just something that's built right in. And it's something that's yeah. like a lot more realistic, I guess you could say, using a framework, especially if you're doing it not just for a learning project. Like I'm just kind of tinkering around. If it was completely broken, it's completely broken. But on a real piece of software, you don't want to have, you know, 50 lines of JavaScript to to one little mechanism in in some yeah. sort of framework. <laughs> Absolutely. It it would be interesting. I don't know if this is in the works. It, is is reactivity? I don't think it is. If if reactivity and data binding was something built into the platform, that would get really interesting because that is I think the the easiest thing, the best example we associate with a framework. Frameworks add tons of different other things on top of that, but the number one thing I think you see people start with is data binding. And data binding is like, I have a variable, the piece of text, the DOM element is bound to that variable. So it displays whatever that variable has, the data that it has. As you update the variable, the stuff on the DOM changes as well. I don't, I don't know. I don't think that that's in the works, but that would get really interesting if JavaScript slash the browser had something built in to handle reactivity like that. Does web components have something like that? That I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, am, I also don't know. I thought yeah. Web Components was the closest example that we're getting to like a built-in framework, but they are quite um, not there yet, in my opinion. Last time I used them, I was like, "Yeah, yep. this is this is not a framework <laughs> yet. I have to go like ten <laughs> levels deep to be able to change yeah. something." It's funny. I've, I feel like there's been mixed content and perspectives on Web Components because I think there are people out there that really love them. But it does feel like the kind of thing where those people that love them have made it through the struggle of getting to that point. And, and maybe we kind of forget what that onboarding experience is and how there's still some stuff missing there. Oh, for sure. Uh, well, I think I think that basically concludes the episode. Unless, Mike, you have anything else to add or if anyone else has anything else to add there. Cool. Yeah, I'm good on my end. Awesome. Well, James, I'd like to uh, give you the floor and uh, thank you once again for being on the show. But, you know, take the floor plug what you'd like, you know, what are you working on? Any specific thing that anyone should be checking out your YouTube channel or anything like that, please take the floor. Yeah. Um, social media, James Q quick on Twitter, YouTube, haven't done TikTok in a while. Maybe I'll get back into it. Um, and then website is jamesqquick.com. One of the things I'm trying to do a better job at is, uh, sending people to my newsletter. So I send updates on content that I'm working on other things that I find useful in the community, that sort of stuff. 
and I've uh, been building. I mentioned the deals for devs. This is uh, you, you could go there now, but it's it's not really going to make sense until I ship a bunch of updates to it. But dealsfordevs.com is meant to be a place where people can find announcements for courses, for coupons for courses, for swag, etc. And and ideally that be going around uh, year round. So that's something I'm going to be working on a lot. And if you're interested in how I'm doing that, what I'm using to build it, etc. Um, I'll be sharing a lot on my YouTube channel, uh, James Q Quick, and then also on my newsletter. So newsletters on the bottom of the homepage at jamesqquick.com, or you can go to slash newsletter for the individual page. Excellent. And we will include those links for the listener out there in the show notes. Of course, you can go check out James's links there. And uh, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Glad to, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that interview with James as much as we did, but it is time to end. And before we end, remember that you can support episodes like this by visiting us and supporting us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. Check out the tiers and give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Fire Ant Season via fireantseason.com, Garrett Segal, Level Up Financial Planning via www.levelupfinancialplanning.com and Joshua via silvio.us. Remember that we also have a Scrimba affiliate link. If you want to go check us out, you can go and get a, a, a discount on a Scrimba subscription plan. Scrimba is a place where you can learn how to code and you can do so online with their interactive media player code editor where you can pause what the instructor is doing and actually interact with the code that's on the screen break it fiddle with it figure out what the heck is going on and then keep listening to the lesson for some more insights and last but not least of course we'd also like to give a shout out to michael LaRocca, a contributing author on html all the michael is the author of self-taught the x generation blog blog at self-taught txg.com feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on and this outro will sign us off You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things, signing off.